Hello and welcome to The Energy Gang, a discussion show about the fast-changing world of energy. I'm Ed Crooks. The Energy Gang is a Wood Mackenzie production. We've got a special episode for you today. It's Climate Week in New York City, and we're part of it. Earlier this week, the Energy Gang, in conjunction with New York University, hosted an event focused on the future of US climate policy. Where is US climate policy going, and what does it mean for the energy transition? We're going to be finding out on the show today. Energy Gang regular Amy Myers-Jaffe, director of the Energy, Climate Justice and Sustainability Lab at NYU, shared a panel discussion with some of the leading figures in energy policy in front of an audience of students, faculty and invited guests, and we're delighted to bring you that conversation in full today. Coming up, Amy is joined by Anna Unruh-Cohen, who's the Senior Director for NEPA, Clean Energy and Infrastructure at the White House Council on Environmental Quality, Elizabeth Gore, who is the Senior Vice President of Political Affairs at the Environmental Defense Fund, and Rob Gramlich, who is the Founder and President of Grid Strategies, LLC. So, without further ado, I'll pass over to Amy and let's join the event from NYU's Washington Square campus. Hello, and welcome to New York University. It's great to be here live in person with our studio audience of students, faculty, and invited guests. Thank you, everybody, for being here. I'm Amy Myers Jaffe. I am the director of the Energy, Climate Justice, and Sustainability Lab in our School for Professional Studies uh, Center on Global Affairs. I'm pleased to be moderating the panel today on the future of U.S. climate policy. Climate activists were marching yesterday in New York City saying the steps that have been taken so far on climate change are not enough. We'll be discussing the ins and outs of U.S. climate policy under the Biden administration. We're going to take a look at what's been accomplished so far. We're going to take a look at what might be new agenda items to come up in the coming year. And we'll also discuss what should be in store in the coming year, even if it's not on the agenda. So the Inflation Reduction Act has been called the Super Bowl of clean energy. The Rocky Mountain Institute calculates that every state in the U.S. can see between $1,500 and $12,000 in new investments per capita. So that means for every person in the state, divide it up, if they take full advantage of all the incentives that are on offer. Goldman Sachs recently published a new estimate saying that about over $1 trillion of public sector investment in clean energy is going to flow into the U.S. economy by 2030. And that's just from the IRA bill that built on the bipartisan infrastructure bill, and it's also being accompanied by other policy changes at the regulatory level um, and agency level. The Environmental Protection Agency has new rulemaking regulating greenhouse gases for power plants, reminding everybody in case we go in that same direction of having the extension the 2023 Fiscal Responsibility Act that passed the Congress that raised the U.S. debt ceiling also tackled reforms to uh, environmental review procedures. So a lot has happened, but to really explore, you know, what's been accomplished and what's next, I'm joined by a great panel. First of all, we have Anna Unruh-Cohen. She is the Senior Director for Clean Energy Infrastructure and the National Environmental Policy Act, NEPA, at the White House Council on Environmental Quality. We also have Rob Bramlick, who is the founder and president of Grid Strategies, LNC, and one of the United States' top experts 
on uh, permitting and the electricity system. And also Elizabeth Gore, Senior Vice President, Political Affairs at the Environmental Defense Fund. So our first topic is really, where do we stand right now? And Anna, I'm gonna start with you. It's been over a year since the United States passed this landmark legislation, including the IRA, but also the other efforts that I mentioned. So where are we now? What do you see as the biggest accomplishments so far? Well, thanks, Amy. It's great to be here at New York University and on the Energy Gang podcast, but especially to be sitting here with Rob and Elizabeth, who are both such smart and dedicated advocates for clean energy and climate solutions. It's a tough question to answer because there is so much happening. And so there's two places you can stay on top of things, which is invest.gov and cleanenergy.gov. I go there often to see what is the latest in the administration because there's just so much going on. But it's been a little over a year since the Inflation Reduction Act became law, and we've already seen agencies move out $70 billion in grants, rebates, and other funding, and that is about a half of what's to come. So as much as we've accomplished in the last year, there's still more coming. And that government investment is catalyzing private investment. We've seen an additional $10 billion in solar, leading to about 52 new and expanded plants, another $70 billion in private investment for EV supply chains, and 90-plus plants expanding. And that's even before we have all of the tax credits kicking in before EPA's Greenhouse Gas Reduction Fund investments start flowing. And on that one, I want to shout out Catherine Hamilton, a former Energy Gang podcast uh, member who was really instrumental to getting that program signed into law. And that's just from the IRA. Infrastructure law had battery processing grants, energy efficiency and conservation block grants, grid resilience, cleaning up abandoned mines and orphan wells. Um, so there's just so much out there. But crucially, all of that is being done with agencies embedding equity and environmental justice in their work so that every community is benefiting from these investments. The EPA alone has put out $650 million for environmental justice projects and to build capacities in communities. And that linking of economic development and equity is at the core of Bidenomics, and I think is one reason we're going to really see these laws succeed in ways that maybe previous legislation hasn't. So Elizabeth, let me move to you. I mean, that's a pretty extensive list of things going on. It's hard to even, you know, list them all in a short podcast. But, you know, we're moving into a presidential election year and the list of different things that are being done and the incentives that still have to be mapped out is pretty long. How confident are you in the durability of these programs being launched now? Well, thanks, Amy. It's great to be here. And I think the Inflation Reduction Act is pretty darn durable. You know, the provisions that make up the IRA are very popular with the American people. Now, they may not know it by that name of the IRA, of the Inflation Reduction Act, but when you describe it, it is very popular across the board, and that helps lead to some durability. 
In addition, as Anna was saying, this bill has already reduced costs for consumers. It's created jobs across the country, and it has spurred billions of dollars of private sector investment. So, you know, there's going to be posturing this fall during the budget debate, and maybe there will be uh, some marginal changes to the IRA over the next couple of months, sanding the corners a little bit. But I think we're going to see it pretty much intact as we get through this budget battle. Now, I see the biggest risk to all of the progress being made under the IRA is in the election of 2024 if we see an anti-climate president head to the White House. You know, if Donald Trump comes back to Washington, you know, he has the ability to take a sledgehammer to the progress that's already being made and stymie the additional progress that we could make if we could have the full implementation of the Inflation Reduction Act. So that's one of the reasons that we're seeing the Biden administration be so productive and so ambitious about getting money out the door, getting guidance in place, getting some of these programs up and running so that we build some momentum towards building a clean energy economy and we have the wind at our back no matter who's in the White House a year and a half from now. And you think it could be kind of like Obamacare, where so many people are benefiting that it would be hard even for an anti-climate politician to roll back? Absolutely. Listen, I think that more and more people are seeing the benefit of these programs and of these policies. They're making our community safer. They're making our families healthier. And they're just good for our economy as well as for our planet. So absolutely, I think that this is right on the path that we need to be. And I'm feeling pretty confident about the prospects of this staying in place. So now, elephant in the room, we've all talked about all these different things, it's very comprehensive, but what about carbon pricing? Is that completely out of the question? You know, a lot of other countries are moving forward. You know, how does it look from your vantage point, you know, on Capitol Hill and elsewhere? But that doesn't mean that carbon pricing is completely off the table, completely off the radar. There's a couple of things going on. Internationally, we see more and more some of these voluntary carbon markets that are starting to pop up. The Commodity Futures Trading Commission, the CFTC, is exploring a voluntary carbon market for the ag sector. And so there's some stirrings in this space on Capitol Hill. There is bicameral, bipartisan support for carbon tariffs that would impose tariffs on manufactured goods that come from companies that are in countries with higher uh, carbon emissions. So the idea behind this bill is that those companies here in the United States that have invested on reducing their carbon footprint, they don't get penalized by imports that have a larger carbon emissions. So is that quite ready for prime time? Maybe not, but you do see ongoing conversations about how you can use prices, how you can use markets to continue to drive emissions down and fight climate change. Okay, let's move to a different subject. Rob, there were several important elements related to the U.S. grid that fell out of the final version of the IRA. From your perspective, do you consider some of that unfinished business? Where do you see the sort of fall lines of what needs to be done? 
Sure. Thanks, Amy. It's great to be here with Anna Elizabeth and you and NYU and the, the Energy Gang. And I want to make sure the people alive in this audience do not fall asleep when we start talking about transmission. It's interesting, really. I echo what uh, Anna and Elizabeth said about the power of the Inflation Reduction Act and its durability. I think we have a great policy, a remarkable policy, given what people like Elizabeth and I know, and Anna when she was uh, on Capitol Hill, uh, know about the votes that we actually didn't really have in the last Congress. And to get that strong a law is pretty extraordinary. But did it do everything? No. There were some policies, uh, some of which, by the way, uh, Anna was the uh, staff director of the House Select Committee on the Climate Crisis, the committee that Nancy Pelosi created. And they sort of took all of these transmission wonky issues and put it into this nice report along with all the other climate priorities. So there were all the priorities were there. We actually got remarkable consensus like we've never had, at least on some of these things like transmission that really are important. They wrote about how we have all of this renewable energy. We could go from five gigawatts a year to 50 gigawatts a year, but the grid is constrained. So we can't get this stuff on the grid. Unfortunately, on the way to final passage, some key provisions did fall out uh, of the uh, Build Back Better into the Inflation Reduction Act. And even though a lot of the news reports after the passage talked about the grid, quote unquote, the actual transmission system really got barely any funding for new lines to connect wind and solar farms, for example. So that is, I think, now has to move to the top of the energy policy agenda. There are a lot of things we could do. We could get into that. But I think that is a, at least one piece of major unfinished business. So let's go to the next step. You've worked at the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission at the beginning of your career. Given that we don't have this additional funding, are there proposals at FERC regarding transmission planning and cost allocation that you think will be helpful or are necessary? Yes, absolutely. So I think the most important energy policy in the country right now is at FERC, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. They have this proposed rule on transmission planning and cost allocation. And what it basically does, it's a long way of saying, and there's a thousand pages of regulatory language and wonky reports and things like that, but it basically says plan the transmission system for the future resource mix. Duh, we all know the renewables are coming. There's a lot of retirements. There's a whole different mix. They're located in different places. The transmission planners, there are transmission planners all over the country. They have that title in their job, and yet they're not actually even looking five years out. So they need to look five, 10, 20 years out and plan the grid. So it's a simple idea. And Chairman Phillips now is running the agency, doing a great job so far. They passed a uh, interconnection reform. And this, you know, can and should be his legacy. I think he really could get this done. The commission over the last 15, 20 years has tried some other major orders, but those have not really worked. And so this could be the, the time that it really works. And is one of the issues that the transmission that's in place for a giant nuclear plant or for a large coal plant might be different or have different requirements than for renewable energy? It's some of that. It's some of the, you know, severe weather means we need to move power from one region to the next and the grid is what keeps the lights on. Some of it is the renewables tend to be remote from load centers. Here we are in Manhattan and you're just not going to put massive wind and solar farms anywhere near here. But the power needs to get in here. By the way, there's some very dirty plants really not far from here. Uh, that were sited too close to disadvantaged communities. You can't shut those down unless you have a replacement. What's the replacement? It's clean energy that's remote, that's delivered on new transmission lines. We've got a few new transmission lines coming into New York from upstate to downstate. 
here, and we know when we get that, we can replace and transition the dirty to the new, but we got to do that. So just to give sort of a statistical context, from 2013 to 2020, the U.S. network of transmission lines grew by about 1% a year. Now, that doesn't mean anything to any of us, didn't mean much to me when I first read the statistic, but if you look at a study done by Princeton University, that rate needs to go up to 2 to 3% a year to be able to really, you know, get the full benefit of the Inflation Reduction Act. So how are we going to get there from here? The Biden administration is trying to tackle issues. You still have some discussion on the Hill. But the big question is, are we succeeding in getting anywhere to sort of resolve this issue? So, you know, let's start with you. Uh, How do you see the permitting situation right now? And, uh, you know, uh, what's the Biden administration plan of action? Well, getting permitting right is crucial, and I'm really grateful for the opportunity to work in the Biden administration, pretty much laser-focused on that issue. When President Biden and Vice President Harris came into office, permitting was already high on the list. In May of 2021, they released their permitting action plan, which made the focus of the government's work to make sure that we have effective, efficient, and transparent permitting. And that has really flowed through the rest of the work that we've been doing. And to achieve that, you know, we need to be guided by the best science. We need early and meaningful engagement with states, tribes, local communities, even, you know, down to impacted neighborhoods. And so now that we have the additional tools and investments from the infrastructure law and from the Inflation Reduction Act, that vision is guiding the work there. Just one example is a you know, multi-agency memorandum of understanding on transmission with the Department of Energy that we're already seeing move forward some proposed rules to use some existing authority from a energy bill I was part of a long time ago to help stand up um, transmission corridors and hopefully accelerate more of the crucial transmission build out that Rob talked about. You know, the good news is during the course of this administration, we've already seen some two offshore wind projects go from proposal to their record of decision, which is getting through the whole NEPA and permitting process. So that's Ocean Wind 1 and Revolution Wind. We've seen a vanadium mine, which is a type of mineral that's important for clean energy, go through the same process out in Nevada, I believe. And then similar geothermal project from Fervo Energy in Utah is about to break ground. So with that focus across the whole government, we're seeing things pick up. Probably one of the most crucial pieces of being able to accomplish that is the nearly a billion dollars in investment that we got from the Inflation Reduction Act to fund agencies to do this permitting work, to hire new people, to have the resources they need, which has really been lacking and a huge bottleneck for permitting in the past. And one thing, since we're here at a university, I know students are eager to figure out how they can work on climate solutions These permitting jobs probably are not usually thought of as climate jobs, but they really are. And they need a whole range of people. They need geologists, biologists, economists, all of these 
different types of tasks. So I really would encourage the young people here and maybe listening to look at those type of jobs as they're looking for a career. We really, really need uh, your service in government. Okay, that might be a tough sell, but Rob can try to make everything sound like super, super exciting in a minute. When you choose Wood McKenzie, you choose a true partner, which brings innovation and clarity along with independent business intelligence. Our global solutions provide you the data, research, and analytics that you need to succeed in the energy transition. We've provided energy intelligence for 50 years, and in the past decade, we've added a wide range of additional capabilities in power and renewables. The energy transition is the biggest change we've ever seen. Market evolutions and technology revolutions have disrupted business models and are creating a new energy landscape. In the 21st century, electricity will come to dominate the energy mix. Navigate these changing energy markets with Wood Mackenzie as policy, regulations and technology continue to evolve. Speak to us today about how our experts can help you thrive in this fast-moving industry as we work together to transform the way we power our planet. So, Anna, just a little follow-up here, because, you know, when they passed the Fiscal Responsibility Act, Congress did include some amendments to NEPA. The idea was to streamline the review process. You know, people have said it's going to help clean energy development. Can you kind of explain that, break that down for us? Sure. There is some news happening on that front. So one of the provisions in the NEPA amendments as part of the Fiscal Responsibility Act set up a way for agencies to borrow or adopt existing things that are called categorical exclusions from other agencies. Those are applied to help. They're like the speediest way you do your environmental review. It's for types of activities that don't have a big environmental impact. So on Tuesday, we'll see the first of those come out. So the Department of Transportation is going to be adopting the Department of Energy's categorical exclusion for EV charging, which means for the big investment we have in EV charging, for those programs, when you're building those chargers in like parking lots and places that have, are already built up, you'll be able to basically to just, as long as they meet certain criteria, move right ahead and build those. So that will really help speed up the build out of EV charging that we need. And then the other one is coming from the Department of Commerce on the semiconductor chips program, uh, which will also help in lots of ways to get those really crucial semiconductors uh, into production. But the thing that I'm focused most of my time on is our proposed rule to update the NEPA regulations. It fully implements those amendments that were part of the Fiscal Responsibility Act and a big focus and help for clean energy is ensuring there's efficiency in how we build those things out. So just one piece of it is agencies will be able to look at sort of the full scope and timeline of benefits as they're assessing a project's need for environmental review. So think about a solar farm. There are near-term land disturbances pollution from building the stuff. But when you look at the long term, you're, you get the benefit of those clean electrons um, getting onto the grid. So agencies will be able to look at that whole range of impacts and timeframes. And we see this as one way to move things forward. That is just one example. Go to NEPA.gov for a lot more information on the proposed rule. It's open for public comment until Friday, September 29th. And I hope you all 
will give us your thoughts so that we can finalize a strong rule that's going to work for clean energy deployment and communities across the country. Okay, Elizabeth, I'm going to turn to you. So Anna's mentioning the issue of communities. A few months ago, a group from Congress proposed a bill that would define how to address community engagement as part of the permitting piece. So what was the aim of that legislation and where do we stand on protecting this conflict between protecting community engagement. Rob already mentioned, you know, the sort of justice element about ensuring that not all the infrastructure in this country goes to communities that are already underserved or already suffering from the harm of industrial facilities. But also, you know, we have the goal, as we've all been discussing, of making sure projects move forward in a timely manner. So there's this bill that's trying to square that knot. Give us a little bit of flavor for that. Sure. So Senator Tom Harper, a Democrat from Delaware, introduced legislation earlier this year to streamline permitting. And the bill also included provisions that benefited communities that would be hosting these big infrastructure projects. So under his bill, those communities would get community benefit agreements, which means that they would get benefits, financial benefits that get directed to them in exchange for being home to the big buildup of some of these infrastructure pieces. Now, part of that is that the community gets to decide how to use that money. The developers don't come in and say, great news, we figured out what's best for you. No, 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 no. This is a community benefit agreement where the community gets to decide and the other thing that the bill included was technical assistance for those communities so that they can be meaningful partners, so that they have the resources to engage in the debate around permitting, around siting, and that they're not disadvantaged because they just don't have the dollars to be a part of that process. So those community benefit agreements, that technical assistance, those are really important provisions in trying to meet two different goals streamlining the siting and permitting for transmission and other clean energy, and fully engaging those communities so that you can address environmental justice issues that we've already talked about a little bit today. And, you know, I would push back a little bit on the idea that those two things are in conflict. I think if you do both of those things well, it makes these projects go more smoothly. It eliminates the tension and the friction that can make some of these projects drag out forever. So I don't see them in conflict. I see them working together. And this bill was one that really did a great job of knitting these pieces together in a way that I think is really productive. So Rob, well, what do you think? I'm saying you're sort of like a mixed look on your I'm face. permitting legislation. Yeah. I think there are some good proposals out there. The Mansion bill in the Senate Energy Committee, I think, is very good for transmission. It has uh, what we call the, the three P's, planning, permitting, paying, and it has provisions for those. The paying part is usually the one that gets me most concerned because we don't have a good way to recover costs of these interstate highway lines that cross, you know, could be dozens of utility footprints. And so uh, they've recognized that. And I think there's good bipartisan discussions going on about those provisions. Are the overall prospects great for legislation and really of any sort now? Probably not. And permitting, I think, falls into, you know, issues between leadership as the overall legislative climate 
really uh, something that, you know, we should think this is high probability, probably not right now, but I'm encouraged when both sides are asking similar questions and talking with each other about options. And if it doesn't pass in the near future, maybe they can put a, a bipartisan bill together that could pass and maybe in the next Congress. And let me just jump in and say, I really commend the Biden administration because these issues are complicated and they are trying to come at it from lots of different angles. Anna talked about the NEPA reforms. There are FERC rules that are moving through the process. Anna referenced the Department of Energy policies. You know, there's all these things that are coming together and I think that they have the potential to make a really big difference. Now, some on Capitol Hill are complaining, hey, you moved ahead without us. Well, people can turn gray waiting for Capitol Hill to pass legislation on complicated issues. So I think the administration is doing what it can, when it can. And do we need legislation to fill the gaps? Absolutely. But we should do what we can as quickly as possible and then come in behind it, just as Rob suggested. Just building on Elizabeth's point there, I mean, we should note that a lot of major transmission projects that are enabling a lot of clean energy are now moving forward. They got federal permits. Uh, so we just put out a report a couple of weeks ago, projects ready to go. And there are 10 major projects that had been in our report two and a half years ago. There were 22 major projects ready to go. Well, now 10 of them are moving forward into construction. And that's great. Getting the actual federal permits uh, was a big part of that. So this, the current administration is getting those permits out and it's very complicated, takes a lot of people across a lot of different agencies and different standards that they're juggling. So that's real progress as well as in certain types of transmission, we've sort of figured out how to get those paid for. So that's progress as well. But the fact remains, it has taken over 15 years for some of these transmission projects. So we're not there yet. We don't have the policies in place to really move the clean energy investments in the way we need to do it. We're, we're not anywhere near sort of 30 to 50 gigawatts a year of renewables with our current approach. We need to keep banging on this. Okay, well, I'm gonna shift gears for our last segment before we close it out here. So the other thing that seems to be sort of floating around in the political sphere on clean energy is more and more discussion about hydrogen as a climate solution. And there are naysayers and there are advocates I mean, we have 10 million metric tons of hydrogen produced a year in the United States, mainly for industry like petroleum refining and ammonia. But, you know, there's a lot of prospects for clean hydrogen. Hydrogen is produced from renewable energy or coming from bioenergy with carbon sequestration. And that might also get to the permitting question. Are we going to be able to have hydrogen pipelines? Are we going to be able to, you know, a site of facilities? So the question is, where are we going on hydrogen? Here in, you know, the northern climes of the United States, hydrogen could be a great potential for long-term seasonal storage for renewables, like say when solar energy is less intense, same thing for Europe. So I understand that the Biden administration now has an interagency task force on hydrogen. That sounds complicated. What's their goals? Well, Amy, as you said, we've used hydrogen in this country for a lot of different activities for years, but in order to stand up and expand a clean hydrogen industry, there are a lot of challenges to tackle. And so that's one reason in June, the Biden-Harris administration put out a national strategy on hydrogen and followed up in August with this interagency task force, the Hydrogen Interagency Task Force, take that acronym 
any way you want to. I'm excited to be able to serve on it from 4CEQ for the Council on Environmental Quality. And we're going to just try and put our arms around all of those challenges. So the technology, the infrastructure, the workforce, the environmental justice pieces that come as part of all of that. So we're just getting started and I hope everyone will stay tuned to our work, but I think it'll be an exciting place to bring together just really all of the, the talents and effort across the government to solve the challenging issues that face a clean hydrogen industry. Okay, so now Elizabeth, I'm gonna to turn to you with my last question in this segment. So apparently there's so much controversy over hydrogen that political groups pro and con are taking out full page advertisements in newspapers like the Washington Post. And we're all having to learn new terms like additionality and all the different colors of the rainbow hydrogen, pink hydrogen, green hydrogen, blue hydrogen. So what do you think of the guardrail issue? I see hydrogen as being hot, a potential solution for us going forward. I mean, it is really exciting what it could do for us, but the details matter. How the hydrogen is produced, what it's used for, that's what matters. And I think in the environmental community, there's concern that the enthusiasm around hydrogen get the head of some of the technological issues that Anna was referencing, and that some of the subsidies that we're seeing for hydrogen push away, you know, they replace low-cost renewable power. So there's lots of conversations about what those guardrails look like and sound like, but I think that the bottom line is that we need to make sure that hydrogen is being used in the most efficient ways, and if there are areas where electrification is a better solution, we should use that solution first. So that's the bottom line for the guardrails that we're looking at. We want to make sure that hydrogen is driving down emissions and is doing it in a really efficient way. And so that's what we've been talking to our friends in the administration on Capitol Hill about. Of course, one of the issues is that if I'm taking away renewable energy that might have electrified and decarbonized something else, because it was already in place and I'm switching it to hydrogen, I'm not getting anywhere. So, you know, some people are arguing that if you have to prove that this hydrogen is fostering new renewable energy, right? That's the additionality concept, right? Kind of move us forward. Yeah, we talk about new, now, and near. So those are the three pillars that uh, the environmental community talks about for hydrogen to make sure that it is meeting the right parameters before we move it forward. Right. So uh, stay tuned because on our next podcast, Ed Brooks will be in London at Wood Mackenzie Consultants' big hydrogen powwow, and he'll be talking to all the participants and going in a much deeper dive on the subject, and I'm sure we'll hear just a lot more about uh, additionality and a lot more about cost and technicals and infrastructure. So stay tuned. Well, I'm afraid that's all the time we have today, but we still have time for our free electro. And I'm going to give it a start. There was a big to-do on Twitter of the last couple of days about a giant, well, apparently it's not a new find, but just the increased information about this giant deposit of lithium we have on the Oregon-Nevada border. 
And that's post facto dissimilar announcement in India, where the Indians found uh, some amazing lithium find that they think could revolutionize their ability to do domestic supply chains for clean energy. So that fits in with my belief system. So my belief system, as a person who's written about commodities uh, for a long time, is that when a commodity suddenly becomes valuable, suddenly it turns out that we weren't running out of supply or it wasn't going to be hard to come up with supply. And, you know, people invest and the supply emerges and lo and behold, we're not running out of oil and we're not running out of this and we're not running out of that. And now apparently we're not going to run out of lithium either. That's my free electron. Anna, how about you? Thanks, Amy. Well, these days I'm eating, sleeping, dreaming about permitting. So I've got two quick ones. One is September 7th, the Center for American Progress put out a report looking at case studies on permitting for five key infrastructure projects that I think everybody would benefit looking at. Uh, it also really talks about the crucial aspect of engagement as being a real key to getting those through. And then my second one is a book that feels like it was written just for me, but I think you all will like it too. It's by Julia Swig. Uh, it's called Lady Bird Johnson, Hiding in Plain Sight, and I am from Texas. And for those of you who don't know that LBJ's history, she is an unsung hero of environmental advocacy and action in the United States. And reading it was a good reminder of all the things that led up to us having the National Environmental Policy Act and this focus on engagement. So the book came out in 2021. There was a podcast then that you can listen to. And actually, there's a documentary that's coming out in November on Hulu, I believe. So tune into that some way, and I think you'll really benefit. Very good. I'm putting it on my to-do list. Rob, how about you? I came in with two. Both were sort of mentioned, but I think I'll go ahead and do them quickly. So one was that that report on projects ready to go. I think it is interesting. People can get very defeatist about transmission. It's really hard. How the heck are you going to build a line across three states? Well, we actually have done it. We're doing it. Ten more just kind of went into construction. So I would commend that report. And then Anna referred to it earlier in what uh, she described about some of the administration's activities. But there was this provision called 216H in the Federal Power Act and from the 2005 Act. And uh, this is timely now because comments are due in a couple of weeks, I think, October 2nd. So if you want to contribute, now's the time. Department of Energy Grid Deployment Office is taking comments. And I mean, what happened was, and I was involved as well back in 2003 and 4 because I worked for the chairman when there was a blackout across much of the Northeast in Canada. I'll never forget those days, but the legislation that came out of that said, well, one thing is DOE should help move transmission forward and it should be the lead agency, regardless of what agency is involved, to get these through, go through all the process, preserve the environmental standards, but get them done. Well, it took 18 years, but now this administration is actually finally implementing that. So I think that's great and it's a good to comment on and give a little positive reinforcement for the agency. Okay, Elizabeth, close us out. Scranton, Pennsylvania. That's where I'm focused these days. Granton is known as the Electric City because in 1880, they deployed electric lights all over the city just a few months after Thomas Edison got his patent on the light bulb. And now there's a new twist. The uh, mayor of Scranton has bought all electric fleet for the city, which is helping to build out a charging infrastructure 
and resulting in the uptake of electric vehicles more broadly as well. So Scranton, Pennsylvania, when you see the office reboot and they look out into the parking lot, there are going to be EVs with charging stations along the fence line there. So uh, that's where I'm focused. Sounds great. Well, listen, I want to thank the panel for just a great evening. We are, now I know more about permitting than I thought I ever would. And um, thank all of you for coming and joining us on a rainy day in New York. Uh, back to you, Ed. Thanks very much, Amy. And a massive thank you to Hannah, Elizabeth, and Rob for joining us on the show. Thanks to our producers, Toby Begins, Gilchrist, and Sam Nash, to Amy, Michelle, and the whole NYU team for having us. And above all, thanks to all of you for listening. We'll be back in less than two weeks this time, on the 26th of September, in fact, with another special edition when I'll be bringing you all the conversation from Wood Mackenzie's annual conference on low-carbon hydrogen in London. And after that, we'll be resuming our normal programming again with regulars Melissa Hot and Amy Harder on October the 6th. Until next time, goodbye.